Welcome to another special episode of On the Ballot with Ballotpedia. I'm Ballotpedia's Editor-in-Chief, Jeff Palais, and I'm filling in for our regular host, Victoria Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today, I'm joined by pollster Scott Rasmussen, who's the president of RMG Research. Scott's innovative approach to polling changed the game in the 90s, and his techniques of talking to Americans in common sense, everyday language helped to reinvent how reliable polling could actually be. He also writes the number of day column for Ballopedia, one of our longest running newsletters, which gives readers a glimpse into some of the most thought-provoking polling RMG research has to offer. Scott, thanks again for coming on the pod. We're excited to have you. Jeff, it's always great to talk with you and, and great to uh, to work with Ballotpedia. Yeah, it's been a really interesting New York sports season for us. I feel like we're going to have to avoid talking about all of that for fear that some bad things have gone on. But we'll just say uh, it's been a little better than it's been in prior years for us, hasn't it? Yeah, let's let's say that's true. And, uh, you know, I, I'm thrilled that the Giants are in the playoffs, which I never expected. But I won't feel really good until order is restored and the Yankees win the World Series. So how's that for a way to end it? Yeah, well, let's uh, let's dive right in. One of our favorite questions to ask guests to come on the show is how they got their start. And I'd love it if you could talk a little bit to our listeners about how you got started as a pollster and what were you doing back then that was different from everyone else? And, and why were you interested in the first place? Well, you know, um, I, I like to tell people I became a pollster by mistake. I wasn't ever planning on this. Uh, but as I, I've come to realize over the years, I was more interested for a longer time than I expected. Back when I was in high school, um, I found out this guy named Joe Napolitan um, had gone to high school with my best friend's father. And Joe was a actually he was the first person ever called a political consultant. Uh, he did polling for John F. Kennedy's campaign and Lyndon Johnson and Hubert Humphrey. And uh, I wanted to meet him. And he gave an hour of his time to a high school kid, which I thought was pretty remarkable. Uh, and I was disappointed after that because everything that I asked him, every question about politics, his first his answer was, well, the first thing is you do a poll. Um, and that's because he was saying you really have to listen to people. It's what they want to talk about, not what you want to talk about. But I forgot about that and went into sports for a long time, did a lot of uh, sports work. And then uh, in the late 80s, some friends of mine were trying to pass term limits and they couldn't get any polling help because Republican pollsters would help them only if it helped Republicans, Democratic pollsters only if it helped Democrats. Uh, I was a numbers guy. I was, uh, you know, I could do that and I knew a little bit about it. And so I began to help them on a consulting basis. And one day they said, why don't you hang out a shingle and, and start polling on your own? And of course, uh, you know, there's a little bit of an entrepreneurial effort there. I said, of course I can do that. And then once they asked me for my first poll, I had to figure out exactly how to do it. Um, shortly after that, I conducted a poll, a uh, national poll on Social Security. And I, I still to this day don't know how it happened, but the Wall Street Journal found out about it. I got a column uh, posted in the journal, got to my first editorial there. And then this new thing came along called the Internet. And none of us knew what, what it was all about. Um, I, I opened a website pretty early, and I think if I told you what I was envisioning, uh, it would be really embarrassing. But more or less, I thought, you know, this was just sort of a data place. I could get people to do things, and I began putting polling data online, and, and I was utterly amazed. All of a sudden, I had a direct connection with people, and they were 
I was reading about my polls in newspapers with people I'd never talked to. And it really just took off from there. Yeah, this internet thing, right? It's really taking yeah. off. And, uh, I think it's going to work out. I like how you said uh, you did a little thing in sports for a while, a little bit of an understatement for a little project in Connecticut, but we'll talk about that maybe another day. Well, yeah, so polling really took off after a while. And before we go a little deeper, then maybe tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your more recent work with RMG Research. Well, one of the things that's changed in polling is that everybody polls now. You know, when I started, uh, hardly hardly any public polls were out there. Gallup would do a poll every month. There might be a couple of others. Uh, I remember back, uh, it must have been the first year of the Clinton administration over the summer, they had proposed a tax increase, and I asked a polling question about it. And, uh, and again, I was a no-name pollster. Just did this one poll question. Uh, Mort Kondracki found out about it and asked about it at a White House press conference, and the White House had talking points on it. And the reason was because there weren't any polls out. I was the only pollster who asked if you favor or oppose this tax hike. Uh, today, every issue is polled on extensively. You know, you can you can wake up and read twenty different pollsters putting out their take on what happened. So uh, it's a little more difficult to carve out a, a niche, and it's also more difficult to poll. You know, back in the old days, people answered the phone and talked to you. Uh, we don't have that world anymore. So what I've had to do is is develop new techniques for asking the polls. But the, still, the truth, the, the fundamental thing that I try to focus on and that I think sets my work apart from most pollsters is I like to ask questions in the language of everyday Americans. Uh, you know, People don't know what woke means. People don't know what CRT means or critical race theory. Um, if you ask people, if you ask people who like socialism, what does socialism mean? It bears no resemblance to what Bernie Sanders or AOC would talk about as socialism. And the reason this is so important is we have a, a feedback problem. Right now, if you're a traditional pollster and you ask people about socialism and you find out 35 or 40 percent of the population support it, which is where the numbers will work out, you think, wow, that's the support for the Sanders AOC wing of the party. In fact, uh, it's just not true. Very few voters think of socialism as an economic program at all. And in fact, most of them prefer free market solutions to different things. So you're trying to ask the questions and think about things in a way that uh, maybe, I guess, is translating uh, Washington speak to the general public. Yeah, how you ask questions is, is such an interesting challenge. It, it always reminds me of the the Will Smith movie, I, Robot. And there's a scene where, you know, you have to ask the right questions of the little machine in order to actually get the answer you're looking for. And if sure. you ask the wrong question, you don't get any answer at all. And the, the little hologram says, you must ask the right questions. So, Jeff, when you bring that up, I want to, you know, one thing that always bugs me is people say, you didn't ask it right, or there is a right way to ask a question. There is no perfect way to ask a question about an issue that is breaking or an issue that people haven't discussed very much. Right. Uh, so what you actually have to do is ask about the issue in four or five different ways and, and learn from the different results you get. Um, and that's, you know, again, it's people they, when people see a poll they don't like, they pick apart the wording or yeah. they go to a poll they do like. And again, you really have to look at it from a variety of angles. Most uh, Joe Napolitan, the guy I mentioned earlier, once said that you should never underestimate 
the intelligence of the American people, but you should never overestimate their their knowledge of political things. And yeah. I think that's it. You know, they're, they're, people are bright. People have good opinions, are relevant in their own context, but they don't know what's going on. Only 4% of voters were talking about the race for House Speaker. Uh, you know, it was an issue that was consuming Washington, and it was a non-event for most of the country. Yeah, it's interesting what you said earlier. I kind of want to go back to something about the difficulty of polling today, because I, I think to your point about, you know, the different perceptions that Americans have on, on our system, you almost would have thought it's easier to pull now. You know, you said there's a lot more polling now. And so if, okay, if there's more polling, then your brain jumps to thinking, well, there's more polling because of what the Internet, you know, outreach is a lot easier. You can have automated polling. But then, you know, you, you brought up a really valid point that it's harder to pull because people don't answer their phone anymore if they even have a phone. So why do you think there is so much more polling now if the challenge has gotten a lot more difficult to engage with uh, voters? And, and Jeff, I want to make one statement right up front. You know, yes, it's much more difficult to poll, but I believe having lots of different pollsters out there is really good and it's making polling better. The polling averages on election day are usually pretty good uh, because, you know, different people using different techniques come up with solutions. The reason people are doing it more frequently now is it's less expensive than it used to be. I mean, it's a simple fact. Having said that, uh, you know, you say you can reach out online. Well, that's true. But you know what? Seven percent of Americans never go online. Uh, there's a segment of the population that just about lives online. Uh, so if you were to go and just reach out using a typical online technique, you would get a whole lot of people, way too many people with a postgraduate degree, way too many people with a bachelor's degree. And by the way, those people like to take surveys more. Uh, you would end up with too many people with higher incomes and living in urban areas. I mean, there's all sorts of biases built in. So you have to find different techniques. Uh, we text people. We even email some people. Older voters in rural areas respond to email surveys. Uh, we do re reach people through apps. Sometimes you have to rely on a panel to, to get you to finish out your survey. But what you have to work on is getting a good sample that takes into account all the diversity in America. And I mean diversity in every form. One of the one of the greatest challenges is to reach people who live in rural areas, people who live in uh, areas in a zip code with less than 250 people per square mile. They don't take surveys as much. They're probably outside more. There's other factors going on, but they're simply that's not their world. So if you don't make a special effort to reach them, uh, you will miss them and your poll will will uh, suffer because of it. Yeah, getting that statistically significant sample size is, is so interesting. I, I, it makes me want to ask a really simplistic uh, and basic one-on-one -on -one polling question, which is, what does it mean when we say the margin? So a 4.3%, you know, I think our listeners might not even really understand what that really truly basically means, because it's really important to how much you can value what the poll is saying. So the margin of error in a poll is a theoretical construct. Uh, you know, and if you took a stats course at some point in your life, you would have learned about it and probably forgotten it by now. But if a poll says it has a three and a half point margin of error, that would mean at the midpoint, which means if there's a 50-50 question, 
if you ran this survey 20 times, you would get, in using the same techniques and everything else identical, you would get results within three and a half points of that number 19 times out of 20. And about 10 times out of 20, you'd be a whole lot closer than that. So it's just giving you a sense that, um, you know, these numbers, it's really easy to sound authoritative. 51% of people say this or that. It's not quite that precise. Um, and, and one of the things that, that I think is missed a lot in commentary and polling is related to that margin of error. Um, it's the way people and pundits and political junkies use polling around elections. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was doing some polling in Utah for Utah 4 for a local newspaper. Uh, and Burgess Owens in my last poll was up by a point, shocked me, shocked everybody else. The conventional wisdom was he was losing. And Burgess was kind enough to win by a point. So he made my poll look good. Uh, and, you know, well, you would say, oh, I should brag about that because my poll was right on the money. Well, but you know what? A poll with a three and a half point margin of error is not a tool to determine who's going to win a one point race. All that my poll really said is this is really close. A turnout shift a little bit in either direction could could make a wild difference. Uh, and so I think that's what we need to be a little more careful about. Uh, polls this last year, this last midterm cycle, if you looked at the Senate polls, uh, they were all show there were about five races that the averages were saying were very, very close. And as it turns out, they all went to the Democratic side. Uh, usually those close races break in one direction or the other. Uh, but that's a whole lot. Accepting that uncertainty is a better way to approach the polling data. Yeah, you said something to me years ago. I think it was probably in 2016 or 2017 about the power of decimal points in polling. And if you tell someone there's a 71% chance of something happening, or if you say a 71.43% chance, that extra decimal point causes people to have a, a different kind of an emotional reaction to the information. So I've always said that that's also a really powerful part of the, the messaging that comes through with polling data. Absolutely. The minute you cite a precise number, it sounds very scientific and people get all hung up on the precise number. You know, if I were to say that uh, 75% of voters like term limits and they've liked term limits, that number has been about the same for 30 years and I've been polling on the question. Well, maybe it's 80%, maybe it's 72%, depending on the vagaries of the year we're in or something. Uh, it's not, the idea is not that it's a precise number, but it gives you a sense of scale, that there's overwhelming support for an issue like this. And again, that's, that's where you want to be careful. As a pollster, uh, when we speak in numbers to other pollsters, we understand that uncertainty. But when we're speaking to the general public, we have to be much more mindful of conveying the uncertainty and conveying that. Uh, you know, when I went around before this last election cycle, I was telling people, I don't know what's going to happen. Looking pretty good for the Republicans, but there's three scenarios in the Senate. One is that the Democrats retain control. Two is that the Republicans win narrowly. And three is the Republicans win better. And I could make a case for each one, but you just had to, had to talk in those ranges rather than saying, I think the Republicans will end up with X number of seats. 
People in general, they like certainty, don't they? So let's take that opportunity to talk midterms for a minute then. So you kind of just said a little bit about what your polling was telling you about there were you know, the multiple mm-hmm. different scenarios playing out. So what in particular were you surprised by? Was there anything like that? Yeah, the, there was a huge surprise to me uh, on the House side. Um, and, you know, on election night, what I do is I have a little cheat sheet. And it lets me know all the races that are somewhere on the bubble, you know, and if these races start going to the Republicans, it means they're having a great night. Uh, if these races start going to the Democrats, it means they're having a better night. And by the time I was uh, settling in that night, it was pretty clear the Democrats were having a good night, relatively speaking, in the House. I woke up the next morning and I was a little bit uh, nervous to look at the stats again. Because my last poll showed the Republicans winning on the generic ballot, the popular vote, by four points. And I was stunned to find out when all was said and done, Republicans did win the popular vote nationwide by three points. So I could say, wow, my poll was pretty close on that. Uh, So what happened? Well, if you had told any pundit, any analyst going into that day, that election day, that the Republicans were going to win the popular vote by three points, every single one of them would have said Republicans are going to have a lot more pickup seats than they than they did. Um, so I tried to understand why that didn't happen, uh, and there's lots of individual reasons, and, and uh, you know some of them were that the Democrats were very effective at reading the data, believing it. A lot of times, people don't like to believe bad news. Uh, They were very effective at it, and they began to put money in places where they had to defend the seats. So Rhode Island, too, was a seat the Democrats were in danger of losing. The notion of a a Democrat losing in Rhode Island was kind of absurd. And we would all say, well, that's a sign the Democrats are in trouble. But you know what? They put money into that race. And because of that, they did win that race. Barely. They hung on more difficult than it should have been. But that was a seat the Republicans could have picked up without that effort. Uh, In a couple of states, especially uh, Pennsylvania and Michigan, the Republican gubernatorial candidates were very weak. That dragged some people down along the way. Uh, But all in all, what surprised me, I guess, is this gap between the Republicans winning the popular vote and not doing as well as they expected in the number of seats they picked up. It's always interesting, the, the vote distribution, how much that, that really matters. Yep. You know, we saw something similar when we look at the state legislative numbers. You know, There were more chambers that were flipped by Democrats, but Democrats had a net gain in 16 states and state legislatures, and Republicans had net gains in 21 states. They just had their net gains in states where they already had the majorities. Right. So yeah, so going back to polling then for a little bit, what else is it that you think causes people to lose faith and trust in polling? And we've talked a little bit about that so far, but is there anything we haven't covered yet that you think is is causing people's faith to waver in polls? Well, I do think the biggest thing that causes people to uh, waver is when there are, are excessively precise predictions made about election outcomes and they don't pan out the way they expected. And I can tell you that when people think they, they're going to win a race and they don't, they blame the pollster. When they win a race that they think they should or their team wins, they, they take credit. The candidate takes credit for winning. Uh, but there's look, polling seems like a, a, a mysterious process. Um, 
you know, the the uh, I went on the uh, the Colbert report years ago and he was talking about the mystics. You know, you must go up to the mountain and do, get this divination and come down and share these numbers uh, because people don't know what goes into it. And a lot of people will say things like I've never been polled. But the truth is, people think polling is accurate if it agrees with their worldview. They think it's inaccurate if it doesn't. Um, and it's very difficult to look at the numbers when you when they don't make sense to you and try to to learn from them rather than just uh, trash them. Yeah, isn't that so much of, of politics? I think we've talked about this story before, but this is our, our favorite version internally at Ballopedia is the three ball, two count example in baseball. So three, two pitch and then the batter takes it. If you're rooting for the batter, you scream ball four. If you're rooting for the pitcher, you scream strike three. And the same exact factual event happened. The ball left the pitcher's hand and smacked into that catcher's mitt. And your worldview shapes how you see that. You can pick any analogy you want. Pass interference maybe for the time of year we're at. But yeah, your worldview really colors all that. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the one of the things as a pollster, one of the things that drives me is when I see results that don't make sense to me, I then go and ask to understand why. You know, I ask follow-up questions to to define things a little bit better. How come this is happening? How come somebody else believes this? And and over time, you begin to respect the fact that I, you know, I may disagree with somebody. I mean, there might even be Eagles fans out there that I could find some common ground. With. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> That's but, hard. Come on, don't push it. Yeah. Well, I, I know the Red Sox are off limits, but the uh, but no, I think when you begin to look at it, you at least say, okay, I can understand a little bit of how you're looking at the world. And with your starting point, I understand how you get to where you are. Yeah. I mean, you said that about 20 minutes ago on the show that uh, listening is, is actually a really big part of polling. And I, I love that. That's really interesting. I want to save one more topic for the end about political polarization, but we haven't even talked yet about number of the day, which is one of my favorite little columns that we published. We've published, I don't know if you know the exact number, but I've got it, more than 1,500 number of the day columns over the last uh, somewhat six years or so. And it's wow. really just a fun daily column and newsletter we put out. So tell our listeners a little bit about, about that. How do you pick the topics and how do you go about collecting that data? You know, uh, this is something that has shifted over the six years. It's taken on different forms at different times. But the basic idea is I am a numbers guy. I can look at anything going on in the world and see a number related to it. And I'm very aware of different anniversaries when they come up, uh, different things that are going on. It's just, I think, in terms of numbers. And so it's became a way for me to express some interesting ideas and you know, some of the topics that we've had are very, most of them have something to do with the political issues going on in some way, shape or form. Or, you know, views of Martin Luther King Jr. on Martin Luther King Day. I mean, those are things that fit in pretty naturally. Sometimes they're historical. My favorite ones are things like, uh, you know, talking back about, uh, you know, however many years ago it was that Congress voted against having a Mother's Day. And you begin to explain what Congress was doing and why they rejected it and how Mother's Day came about without the blessing of Congress anyhow. Uh, those are fun stories. And sometimes it might be something, um, you know, uh, about first jazz recording. We've got one coming up soon about sliced bread. So, you know, that'll be something else to see. But it's just it's just a, a fun way of looking at the world and, uh, and finding different different ways to highlight stories. 
Sliced bread is an amazing story. My son and I watched a little documentary about it last year about how it was invented by someone who just hated the fact that he constantly got burnt bread um, <laughs> out of the toaster. I should say toast, not sliced bread. But still, there's always a ton of history that's really interesting when it comes to bread. So we'll look forward to that one. And and again, I think, you know, that's really it. It's, it's just a different way of taking a look. And I like you know, we sometimes in the political world, we get so focused on what's happening in politics that we forget uh, that what's going on in the rest of the world matters more to most people. So it's it's always helpful and healthy to take a look at that and have a little fun while you're doing it. Yeah, it's not worth doing if you're not having a little bit of fun. Before we get into our last question, what other more interesting polling are you excited about? What can you give our, our listeners a little bit of a sneak peek into what's coming in the next quarter? Well, you know, some of our polling, a lot of our polling is following the current events and what's happening. Uh, but there are a number of things that I like to look at and get an understanding of. One of the things that we do different from any pollster is every survey we conduct, we ask people a question about if you had a choice of four presidential candidates and they all had equal character and competence, would you want somebody who supports Trump-like policies, traditional Republican, traditional Democrat, or Sanders-like policies? And I've uh, been doing that since October of 2020 on a very regular basis. And it's I'm looking to see what is happening with that group of people who prefer Trump-like policies now that things have shifted a little bit. Uh, we do know that there are about 15 or 20 percent of that group like the policies but don't like President Trump. Uh, is that number going to grow? Are the number who support his policies going to go down? Uh, more than the specific numbers, though, it's really interesting then to get a sense of uh, how differently those segments see the world. Uh, another gap that we're looking at that I think is growing, especially on uh, social issues, is a gap between white Democrats and black Democrats um, on a number of topics. If we're talking about fiscal policy or some general programs, there's not a lot of difference. But on a number of social issues, uh, the black Democrats are much closer to a Republican position than they are to the white Democrats. And so that's an interesting divide to watch. Uh, broadly speaking, and this is you know one of the themes that I like talking about these days, uh, for all of my life, the political right has been identified with freedom, the political left with equality, and they kind of butt heads over both of them. Uh, I think that voters, well, first of all, I know because we polled on it, voters don't see a conflict. They think if you have more freedom, you'll have more equality. Uh, and the party, if, if a younger political leader can come along and combine those two and ex give an expression to a way that we're supporting both freedom and equality, that's the way that we'll eventually have some uh, an end to the polarization that we've been struggling with as a nation in recent years. So, uh, you know, how do we get from here to there? Well, that's a little bit tricky. Um, it takes a president. It takes a president like FDR or Ronald Reagan who knew how to give voice to something different than the conventional political divide had shown. Polarization has, has certainly seemingly grown, as you already just spoke to. So well, you're an optimistic person by nature. We've had a lot of discussions like that over the years, and I think I am as well. So I think we can both be optimistic together for the future and fate of our country. So it should be an interesting ride. Anything else, Scott, that you want to plug about RMG Research? Uh, nothing in particular about RMG Research. Uh, you know, we do, we do uh, a lot of different polling and a lot of different topics. 
but I do, you know, I, I think the, the focus should be on how do we on how do we bring these issues together in a different way? What is it going to take? We've had nine straight presidential elections where nobody got more than 53 percent of the vote. We used to have landslides regularly. Uh, the question that I would like to find out is what will lead to the next presidential landslide, the first one since 84? And, and the reason I, I put it in that manner is, you know, when, when Ronald Reagan won 49 states, nobody on the other side complained and said if Mondale had gone to Wisconsin, he'd have won. I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. There's a purging and a legitimacy to the process that comes from that. Um, and that's what our, that's what we need is someone who can give voice to a, to a message that will bring us to that point again. And uh, ideally, RMG research is providing some of the data that's showing where that common ground might be. Well, in 1980, Herb Brooks made a bunch of Boston and Minnesota hockey players love each other by hating him. So maybe <laughs> everyone just needs a common enemy. I don't know. Maybe the aliens will invade from uh, Independence Day. We'll see. All right. Well, I've got one last question for you, Scott. What advice would you give the general public when trying to make sense of any given poll? The first thing I would do is say, don't rely on a single poll. Um, whatever you look at, Take a look at some comparative, uh, some other polls from a different perspective. If it's an election poll, look at the averages and look at the averages with a bit of grace. Recognize that if the average is showing it's close, just say it's close. We don't know if somebody's going to win by a point or not. If it's an issue poll, really try and think about how would somebody who doesn't live and breathe politics, hear this question. What are they responding to? How much would they know about the topic? Um, and, and then begin to understand the choices that are there. And that's, and that's where the hard part comes in. Again, people in the political world that hear these buzzwords, and boy, they think everybody knows what it means. And most of the time, they're wrong. Good advice. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for your time. I'm sure I'll catch you sometime later on this year. And uh, let's hope that we can maybe celebrate a Yankees World Series win come November. That would be a great way to end this year. Thanks, Jeff. 